Hi guys, I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. Welcome to the Goop Podcast. Every Thursday, Goop editors will be sitting down with provocative thinkers, industry disruptors, and culture changers. I'll take turns interviewing barrier-breaking guests as we talk about shifting old paradigms and starting new conversations. Today's guest, Dr. Taz Bhatia, is a board-certified integrative medicine physician, an acupuncturist, and the founder of Center Spring MD, a functional medicine practice based in Atlanta. Her most recent book, Superwoman Rx, is exactly what the title suggests an overview of the different female power types that she's identified among her patients and how best to help each group adapt to doing it all. I realized there were really five types. And if you go back to my kind of original intention and hope for women is that if I could hand them like a toolbox, like, hey, these are the things you need to do. Well, how do we individualize and customize that without every single person going through, you know, a practice, which I know there are not that many practices like ours. And so I was like, I wish I had had this information in my 20s. I wish somebody had told me these things. And so that's how the types emerged. Dr. Taz sat down with Elise Lunin, Goop's chief content officer, to talk about concrete things that women can do to optimize their health, particularly when slowing down isn't an option, or at least not a desirable one. You have anxiety, you're kind of out here somewhere, it's completely unrelated to the gut issues you're having, and it's completely unrelated to this hormone issue you're having, so you break the body up into all these different pieces. But when you're able to take all of it and amass it and then sift through it, you really have a powerful tool, and you have a tool that can not only empower women and change their lives, but can really move the entire conventional medical model forward if we were only to embrace it. After the conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you've got a burning or totally random question you want me to answer, hit us up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Before we get to Dr. Taz, let's talk about one of our partners. Here at Goop, we've been following Dr. Josh Axe's brand, Ancient Nutrition, for a long time. As a functional medicine doctor and certified nutrition specialist, Dr. Axe is focused on sourcing the very best ingredients with inspiration from Ayurveda and traditional Chinese herbalism and the formulation of superfood supplements. Speaking of ancient foods, they make an incredible bone broth protein packed with collagen and other beneficial compounds, including hyaluronic acid, glucosamine, chondroitin, and potassium. Like the other products in their line, the ingredient list is short, bone broth protein concentrate sourced from natural chickens. The products are tested to be free of GMOs, hormones, and antibiotics, and they also make a great organic version as well. Besides being great for general wellness, bone broth protein can help support joint mobility and flexibility, digestive health, and healthy skin, hair, and nails. Check out the store at ancientnutrition.com shop. Goop fans will get $10 off their first purchase using promo code GOOP. Now let's get to Elise and her interview with Dr. Taz. So Dr. Taz, can you describe what you call the superwoman syndrome? Yes. And I think it is an epidemic and it's rampant. It's everywhere. You know, what I've noticed after working with thousands of women over all these years is that many women, you know, it's a time in women's history where we really can do anything we want to do. Usually we have the opportunities there. But what that's done is it's put a tremendous amount of burden and stress on women, unlike any other generation of women in previous history. And so we do it all, right? We're moms, we have careers, we run businesses 
businesses and corporations. We do volunteer work. We take care of the community and the family and, and you know, you name it. And the list goes on and on. But but we still don't have the structure within a society or within even a community or family structure to support now 20 different roles that any woman is asked to do on any given day. And so what's happening medically and scientifically is that women are stressed. They're more stressed than any other generation of women before us because it's just not physically possible to do everything all the time and do it well. And so it shows up in my office in lots of different ways. It'll show up as anxiety or depression. It might show up as gaining weight. It might show up as a thyroid disorder. We all have superwoman syndrome, but we don't have the toolbox to go with it to help prep us, to educate us as to how to navigate these new waters, which is what femininity looks like today. So no one, you know, sat us down through our schooling or education or our parents and were, cause they didn't, they didn't know, you know, mm-hmm. as a generation of women, I think we're struggling and it's, I think it's super ironic because while there's all this opportunity and there's all this ability and we're seeing first for everything, like I just looked at a picture before walking in here of, uh, I think a Senator who brought her baby onto the Senate floor to sign a bill or, you know, or something like, I just saw the picture. I don't even know her name, but I'm like, while all these images are so amazing and exciting at the same time, I also know the toll it's taking physically Mm -hmm. on women. So I just felt like, you know, the book is a little bit of tongue in cheek because it's my daughter who's like, you need to write a book to help women. Everyone calls you a superwoman. So maybe you can help other women be a superwoman too. And I'm like, you know, you're right because I feel better today than I did 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. I have more energy today than I did back then, but that's because I understand me Mm -hmm. and I understand what it takes to take care of me. And I know how to navigate this, Mm -hmm. but I wish every woman had that same information and was able to take it and rattle off real quickly what they always needed and also knew very, just as easy and just as quickly as when it's time to withdraw and when it's time to back away. Yeah. I like the idea too of it being a tool set because I think particularly because women now get to do whatever we want. Like I chafe when people say, oh, you're doing too much. Of course I'm doing too much, but like that's my decision. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I don't want to necessarily, I I understand I can't do it all at the same time. And like my friendships have certainly suffered in the last five years since having kids. Um, But I'm more interested in how do I move forward um, and keeping, sustaining this pace to some extent and then using tools, whether it's sleep or food um, or meditation or whatever it is to keep going rather than feeling like I have to give stuff up. I mean, up. I'm, I'm with you. I have no desire to give anything up. I am in no shape, way, form, mentally, emotionally, or physically wanting to slow down. I, if anything, I have 50 more projects <laughs> ahead of me. So I get annoyed, too. I'm like, don't don't tell me to slow down. Don't tell me to calm down. You right. know, Don't tell me to take the back seat. That's not it. But we do have to be smart about it, right? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't drive a car without learning how to drive. So you have to learn how to drive your body, so to speak, as you take on one thing after another. All right. So break down for us. Um, I know a fair, a fair amount about your philosophy, but share with everyone sort of the tenets of self-care of how we need to be eating. We can get into more detailed sure. sort of eating plans for different things, but what's the, what are the basics? 
there are probably three or four cardinal rules that everybody needs to do no matter who they are and no matter how much we talk about individualizing things or personalizing things. Most people can benefit from an anti-inflammatory semi-vegetarian diet. So, you know, lower gluten, lower dairy, lower sugar, really bring in more plant-based foods. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a full vegetarian, but just more of those plant-based foods are going to be beneficial and bring in those healthy fats. I mean, and that's a safe place for most people. You know, Mm -hmm. the majority of people will do really well there. We know from a self-care standpoint that being cognizant of stress and stress levels is critical. And so many people go from a high-stress job to a high-stress workout routine to a high-stress home, and they stay on this sort of adrenaline rush for the majority of their days and weeks and months, and that leads to a crash down the road. So take two to three hours a week to check out, you know, and do something that, first of all, you enjoy, that brings you joy and, and passion, so it sort of sparks that next phase of your life or that next thing that you want to do. But secondly, also something that lowers cortisol. You know, so many people say, well, I do take time for myself. I exercise, but that exercise is, you know, a spinning class or orange theory, or, you know, they're going to run a marathon because that's the next goal on the list or whatever else it is. That's not really rejuvenation. That's not really lowering cortisol. That's not really removing yourself to a healing state that Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, these older systems of medicine believed in that the body only heals when it's at rest. And you really only can continue your sustainability if you take these periods and time, you know, time to rest. So really it's more like do yoga, do acupuncture, get a massage, go be in nature, you know, be in your water. These are things that are calming that force your cortisol level to come down over time. And then I think after that is to build a community around you, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's very hard to do anything in isolation. And as women, especially if we're going to add children and families and everything else to the mix, you need, you need a support group, you know, and that support group can look like anything it needs to look like. It can look like friends. It can look like family members. It can look like, you know, somebody that you volunteer with, but whatever it is, it could look like a spiritual community, but you need that support group. And I think probably the last, maybe on my four central tenets is to be spiritually connected to some Thing. Because I think when we're not, then we lose kind of our anchor of mm-hmm. where we need to be and, and what's happening. Yeah, no, that all seems fair. I think to the small moments, even if it's just a few hours a week, I think you mentioned that seems more attainable than this. I think what also happens is women were, were we were perfectionists, and so then it's like, well, let's what's optimal, right? right. And then. Right. It feels unattainable, and therefore it never happens. Absolutely. But just kicking off your shoes, walking in the grass. um, Tiny moments. You know, I always say anchor your day. That's another one. And when I set that two to three hours a week, I'm usually telling my patients it could be 10 to 15 minutes twice a day, you know, or it could be a two-hour something that you schedule on the weekend. But, you know, again, setting your day, both the front end of the day, the end of the day, to where you just have – time and space to yourself to think to to really evaluate before you're just rushing and running and trying mm-hmm. to get through whatever it is you have to get through or our classic list that we all make and check off you know before you get to that you know finding some of the time for this other stuff yeah no that makes so much sense so in the book you break women into five power types so can you sort of explain what they are and how you arrived there yes I love these power types so again remember I've been sitting with women for a really long time I've got all this 
knowledge about different systems of medicine. So the fun part of my practice is being able to have somebody and then identify their Chinese medicine diagnosis or meridian imbalance, their Ayurvedic dosha, because they thought about people as, you know, individuals, mm-hmm. not as big averages, and then to know their hormone patterns, and then to see their personality stuff, traits emerge, and then to get the labs back and be able to merge all that information together along with other nutritional information and if you do that over and over and over again, you start to see patterns, you know, and you'll be like, wait a minute. So the Pitta and Ayurveda equates to uh, the liver meridian in Chinese medicine, which equates to this particular type of person that I keep meeting over and over again. And so as I started to track all this stuff, I realized there were really five types. And if you go back to my kind of original intention and hope for women is that if I could hand them like a toolbox, like, hey, these are the things you need to do. Well, how do we individualize and customize that without every single person going through, you know, a practice, which Mm -hmm. I know there are not that many practices like ours. And so I was like, I wish I had had this information in my 20s. I wish somebody had told me these things. And so that's how the types emerged. And each type has an Ayurvedic dosha, has a Chinese medicine meridian pattern, has a hormone pattern, has a nutrient need and pattern as well, has a personality type. Because in Eastern systems of medicine, they firmly believe that that emotional world is driving the chemistry. And the chemistry, in turn, is showing up in our lab work. But conventionally, you know, as a Western-trained physician or an MD, we were never taught the way to connect all those dots together, right? You have anxiety, you're kind of out here somewhere, it's completely unrelated to the gut issues you're having, and it's completely unrelated Mm -hmm. to this hormone issue you're having. So you break the body up into all these different pieces. But when you're able to take all of it and amass it and then sift through it, you really have a powerful tool. And you have a tool that can not only empower women and change their lives, but can really move the entire conventional medical model forward if we were only to embrace it. Do you find, because I would imagine that there's a major intuitive part of this, particularly now that you've put it into practice. So like in the 10 minutes that we've been sitting here, are you like, oh, I've, you're, I nailed you. And, <laughs> I pegged you. And now I'm sure if we oh did your gosh. lab, we confirm everything I do, that yes, I Yes, I do that quite often, <laughs> I, I will have to admit. And I try to hold myself back because you always want the surprise of each individual, right? <laughs> so yes, I do have a tendency to, to do that. And I had started to do that before I even wrote the book that like, ah, uh, yeah. And then the labs, do you use those as typically a starting point or just confirmation of what you already believe to be true? Labs are confirmation for me because again, when you take the Eastern diagnostic system, mm-hmm. you do a good history and physical, like we were trained originally to do in, in medical school. And you really, truly take time with the patient. You hear their story and you merge that information together. Labs are a treat quite honestly, they're a bonus. They're like, aha, I was right. You know what I mean? That's what labs are for me. Every now and then I get surprised. I find something I didn't expect. I'm sure it's highly individualized, but labs are typically not part of a a conventional practice. For people who are really curious or suspect that they might be deficient or what's the, in your practice, is there sort of a gold standard or like a baseline that you recommend that someone who's listening could go and ask their primary care physician for? Absolutely. And we talk about a lot of this in the book. And in fact, by each type, we have a list of labs that they should probably be asking for and tracking, you Mm -hmm. know, throughout, throughout their, you know, health journey, quite honestly. And when it comes to every type, I wanted women to test their hormones. And I, and I feel strongly about that. And I, you know, 
kind of diverge from the conventional community a little bit there. But I think we have to know what our hormone levels are when we're well. So we also know what they are when we're not well. So we have a benchmark of some kind. Because otherwise what we're doing, again, is we're being dumped into a pot of averages. And average for everybody doesn't work, you know. And quite honestly, those levels that are normal conventionally haven't been updated in a really long time. So you take this new syndrome, superwoman syndrome, and you take lab values that are quite antiquated and you have a complete disconnect and you have women not picking up early enough when things are starting to go wrong or when things can simply be optimized to help them be their mm-hmm. best selves and do all these amazing things they want to do. So yes, all women should check their hormones. And when I say that, they should probably check them every six months and it's a full thyroid panel. It's your estrogen levels your progesterone levels, insulin levels. You should be taking a look at all of that. And you'll hear some pushback there. Well, we cycle, so our hormones are never consistent at any given moment. But you can still, again, set rough averages of where they should never go above and where they should never go below, and those should be flags. So you can test an estradiol. It shouldn't really ever be over 200 at any point in your cycle, you know. And you can test something called estrone, which is static. It's a storage form of estrogen. You can test progesterone. It should never, even at the lowest point in your cycle, ever go below 0.5. So there's some of these standards that you know we can get through regular insurance-based testing but we just have to have the knowledge to ask for them and we also have to know how to interpret them mm-hmm. you know so so those are some and then I think every woman should be tracking her B vitamin levels those are critical and so many people come in fatigue losing hair you know having anxiety because and it's simply a, a nutrient deficiency something simple like a B vitamin uh, magnesium levels should be checked iron's another big one that I see over and over again those are easy to check and probably the last like must please try you know no matter what you can do is track your inflammation levels and track them again ideally every six months if that's too aggressive at least yearly because that is the way to pick up when the body is starting to react against itself and you're not in that place to really not only just be optimal but you may be on your way to sickness and by the time it truly shows up it may be three years maybe five years it may be ten but anytime there's ongoing inflammation in the body that should be a clue a warning sign that you're either not eating right not living right not sleeping right, you know, not on the right supplements for you, have a toxic load, something else is going on to drive that inflammatory cycle. So interesting. Do you have any strong feelings about vitamin D? I D is just as important. I did not mean to leave it out. <laughs> D is just as important. I'd, I mean, there's so many things I'd add to the list, but, but if I'm trying to really pare down, yes, I would add yeah. D to that list. D is important as well. That's, I think that's so helpful. Just, I'm the, my dad's a doctor as people probably know by now. And he's a great doctor, but I'm one of those kids who never had, like, I just... You never went to the doctor. Yeah, Did you ever doctor. go? I feel like my kids never go to the doctor. Oh, so, no. anyhow. It's only recently that I'm like, oh, I should get a panel done. And right. I should really understand what I'm looking at. And I was actually like a victim of, we have, I have congenitally high cholesterol, mm-hmm. but good LDL and HDL. But so that was my like blood work experience wow. was... Being a skinny kid eating ice ice milk instead of ice cream, which doesn't exist anymore. Right. But being on this weird <laughs> diet. A topic that is very resonant with our audience is, I think, in general resonant with most women who have sort of maybe already had kids or in their 30s or 40s. Weight loss resistance. Like when your body just says... We're not gonna not gonna cooperate. We're yeah, done. You're gonna We're be done. ten pounds heavier. Just accept it. Yeah. What's at play there? Oh my gosh, there's so many factors there, and it's probably one of the biggest patient 
complaints that we get as well and one of the most common questions I get when I when I travel or speak but it's basically where what you did no longer works exactly. essentially yeah. like I used to eat right I used to gain five pounds after after a trip or a vacation or something like that but then as long as I got you know did the right things with food and exercise I was right back in shape and that doesn't happen anymore and here's the catch with women in particular we're hormonal and so what happens is is that after a certain point add up the stressors, add up maybe, again, a diet that doesn't work for you. I mean, you could be calorie restricting, but still eating the wrong foods. You're not going to lose weight. And the reason for that is that the majority of our metabolic rate and our ability to lose weight resides in the gut and the health of our liver. And so if either of those two have been compromised for whatever reason, you know, either travel, stress, children, breastfeeding, you know, having multiple children back to back, you know, whatever the reason is, if those have been compromised, then literally there's a switch that goes off in the body. It's a metabolic switch and it gets turned on and it turns you into a fat store. You basically store. So no matter what you eat, you could be down to 500 calories a day, but all of that you're storing and that will use usually show up as abdominal weight or weight kind of in the back or in your arms, areas that you normally didn't gain weight in the in the past. And so it's really hard to unwind that. What is the antidote? I certainly have struggled with that since having my second child where I cannot do anything about it. And it's well, driving me yes, crazy. And I think a lot of, including myself, quite honestly, a lot of us like will go through this like ebb and flow. And the other thing that's really an epidemic among women in their 20s and women in their 30s as well is PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. And again, it's a trifecta, is stress, the environment, a gene, but it basically triggers women to produce a lot more androgens, which are male derivatives or male hormones. And that in turn makes us gain weight, makes us lose hair, makes us break out. So the first thing I would think about if it's shortly after having children or shortly after stopping breastfeeding is that what's happened to my hormones. That's the first place I would go before you start calorie restricting and doing any of that. The second thing to understand, again, is going back to the health of the gut and the health of the liver, that what this sort of, again, the combination of stress and children and responsibility and changing hormone levels, it impacts digestion. So for many women, they start losing their digestive enzymes. They lose something called hydrochloric acid, which helps us break Break food down. And as you lose those things, food can't travel through the entire digestive system properly or with efficiency, and your metabolic rate changes. So again, that switch is activated because mm-hmm. the body's thinking, hey, I'm not getting what I need. I'm not getting the nutrients that I need. So what happens over time is insulin levels go up, blood sugar levels go up. So you have to totally outsmart the machinery is what you mm-hmm. have to do. And there are different ways of doing that. The first is look at your intervals of eating. So go for a good four-hour interval between meals because if you're doing too much grazing or snacking or you know, eating sugary snacks in between meals and things like that, then again, all that's just getting stored. The second is to really load protein load in the morning. We've heard that before. I don't think there's anything novel about what I'm saying, but we're understanding that the amount is significantly higher than what we thought. So to really get out of this mode, we're talking like 20 to 30 grams of protein in the morning, followed by another 20 to 30 grams four hours later, and then another 20 to 30 grams after that. And you know, some of the research is saying the heavier, heavier you are, the more protein you need. And then keeping that kind of fasting 14 to 16 hour fast mm-hmm. so that all this excess insulin and blood sugar and stuff like that clears out. And then taking digestive enzymes, you know, to help you break your food down, taking hydrochloric acid, you know, taking probiotics as well that help you with kind of the microbiome and improving that. These are things that kind of can switch you out of that mode as long as your hormones are balanced. If your mm-hmm. hormones aren't balanced and you're still doing all this gut work, you're still going to be equally fresh 
frustrated that nothing's happening and nothing's shifting. So I would say work on hormones, work on the gut, Mm -hmm. work on the patterns of eating, eat when you're metabolically active, not when you're metabolically inactive. And then after all of that, that's when movement and exercise come into play. But again, with reason, you know, Mm -hmm. I still don't believe like doing five days a week of high intensity cardio exercise is going to be helpful. If you're dealing with this weight loss resistance or insulin resistance, it's a balance. So mm-hmm. it's some weight training because that does help to build muscle, which makes you metabolically active again. But it's also calming down those stress hormones because remember, they're contributing to that switch being turned on that we keep talking about. So bringing in some of the non-adrenaline pumping workouts, maybe instead of doing a five-day-a-week run, three days a week you run, but two or three days a week you swim or you do yoga or you do Pilates or, or Tai Chi mm-hmm. or something else. So it's, again, understanding that not being able to lose weight is a combination of lots of different factors. It's usually not one. And every now and then I have the weird case, right, or the, you know, the other stuff that comes up, but it's toxicity, mm-hmm. you know, parabens, phthalates, heavy metals, uh, and the role they play mm-hmm. in blocking our hormone system. So Interesting. You mentioned PCOS, which is something that we get a lot of questions about at Goop. And it seems to be on the rise. Can you sort of explain what the symptoms are and why you think that is? Uh, Yes, absolutely. PCOS is a big part of my story and why I'm even in the integrative and functional space. But PCOS stands for, by the way, polycystic ovarian syndrome. And in our classic medical textbook, it's basically described as a disorder where you're very overweight, you have balding, and you typically have cysts on your ovaries. But what we have found that in the last decade, probably 10 to 20 years, PCOS is becoming rampant. It's an epidemic, but it's showing up in a different version. It's showing up in very subtle versions. So it's essentially a spectrum, meaning, sure, you could be the extreme of the picture in the textbook of being very overweight with a bald crown and all that other stuff that they tell us about. But there's this whole other group of women that are suffering, and it's a major cause of their hair loss, their infertility, their inability to lose weight, their inability to have a regular period, and so many young women not getting periods or not being able to maintain a regular cycle. And the more I see it, what you look for in the clinic or in the lab setting is you look for not just you know some of those symptoms, but you also look to see what the thyroid doing? Do they have high androgens, which is going to be like testosterone and DHEA and those type of hormones? And do they also have issues with their gut? Like, are they having a lot of, you know, bloating, constipation, things like that? And you work to sort of manage and muster all of those things to where they need to be. But the why was never answered for me. Like, why is this happening? Are we, again, is it superwoman syndrome? Is everyone just super stressed? Are young girls really stressed? And that's why they're getting PCOS. And I finally come to understand that it's, again, the perfect storm of probably three things. I think there's absolutely this hormonal component. There's a genetic predisposition to it, for sure. And it may lie in a gene called MTHFR. And that gene helps us or sort of dictates that we don't detox things very well. So then we run low in B vitamins, we run low in a lot of key nutrients that help us with our hormones, so hence the hormone issue. There's always a gut component to it, so usually it's either that you're eating a very high sugar diet or a high refined carbohydrate diet, and that's causing candida in the gut. But there is what we're finally understanding is that the why behind all of that and why I'm seeing more and more every day is that it's environmental. And what we're finding is that all these endocrine disruptors, the parasites, 
parabens, the phthalates, the organophosphates, the heavy metals. They're coming in and disrupting the hormone cycle in young women, young girls. It's beginning super, super early. I mean, I have a 10-year-old daughter, and she's got you know, third and fourth graders that she know she knows that already have their period. So what's happening is that these toxins are coming in, they're disrupting the hormone cycle. And in some cases, they're causing the lack of a period, the inability to get pregnant, or the drive of these hormones, the conversion of these hormones to these androgens that are then driving PCOS. And it's been interesting to because it's our story and our family but it's also been interesting to work with patients with it but like out of you know I have two sisters and then my mom and we each have a different version of PCOS my mom's in menopause but her menopause presented as balding right whereas every other woman doesn't necessarily have menopausal balding but she had that classic her testosterone is always high her DHEA is always high and it went into that with high stress again and also transitioning into menopause my second sister has the same issue you know she doesn't have balding but she has the skin issues that go with it you know and she's certainly not overweight and then the youngest sister you know she struggles a little bit more with the weight component of it so it comes in different pieces you know and I think it's getting missed because classic we're trained as physicians to look for that very, very extreme example. Like so many other issues in medicine, we look for the extremes. We don't look for things on a spectrum or on a continuum. And we really need to educate younger women more and more about cleaning out the toxins, working on their gut health, paying attention to their hormones and their androgens so that they're not hitting 25, 30, 35, wondering why they can't get pregnant or why they're having this whole host of other symptoms that are are presenting. And sometimes too, after having that first or second baby, it then flares. So I just think more and more people need to be aware of it. We'll have more of Elise's conversation with Dr. Taz in a minute. In the meantime, let's talk about one of our partners. Obviously, we're huge podcast fans over here at Goop, and a new one just launched that I'm so excited about, the Barney's Podcast, which could only come from a retailer that is also one of the cultural epicenters of New York City. I think everyone has their coming-of-age shopping at Barney's story. For me, it was my very first pair of patent leather Mary Jane Chanel heels with rainbow squares across the toe. Actually, they're my only pair of Chanel Mary Jane heels. I bought them for my first job interview at Condé Nast more than 15 years ago. They were on sale during one of those rare events in the shoe department. I still have and treasure them. I also bought my wedding dress there, a really beautiful Nina Ricci gown and white lace. Not intentionally bridal, but perfect. The sad part is that because it wasn't a wedding dress, my parents assumed that I must have saved a fortune. Not so much. Anyway, fashion and design are so much more than the clothes we wear. They truly can be the background to the most important moments of our lives. And nobody establishes what's new and interesting in fashion and design like Barney's. The Barney's podcast features conversations with some of the most creative people working in fashion, discussing why they do what they do and how they got there. People like poet and activist Cleo Wade, who will incidentally also be at our big wellness summit in Goop Health. Teen Vogue's Phil Picardi, and Barney CEO Daniela Vitali. My favorite so far is episode four, which is Simon Doonan, style icon and Barney's creative ambassador at large, in conversation with his husband, the potter and design guru Jonathan Adler. They talk about their first date on rollerblades, the time they were robbed at gunpoint in Peru, and how the sacred runs through Adler's creations. The Barney's podcast, it's heartwarming and hilarious. Okay, let's get back to our chat with Dr. Taz. 
do you prescribe hormones in your practice mm-hmm. or do you, is that a permanent solution? I get asked that. That's such a great question. I get asked that all the time. Everyone's always like, if I go on this, am I going to have to be on this forever? So yes, we prescribe hormones. We absolutely do. Because I do think for somebody, especially the worse off you are, the more you need hormonal work and the less you need food and supplement work, just because I can't get you out of where you are until we have some immediate results. So we do prescribe hormones, but I can tell you after working not just on me, but on so many other people that you can come off your hormones when you've got all the other factors lined up. When you're on the diet for you, you've got a good functioning gut, you've got a clean liver, you're at least thinking about your liver and you've got your lifestyle sort of well-managed, you're less and less dependent on hormones. So a classic case for me is the person that walks in and is super hypothyroid, you know, and they might have Hashimoto's um, hypothyroidism where it's an autoimmune thyroid issue, and they're miserable. They're losing hair, they're fatigued, they're brain fog. They've got all your classic symptoms. I'm not going to tell that person to go on an autoimmune diet, you know, and they're going to feel better. I'm going to first give that person some thyroid medication to get them out of how they're feeling as we work on on their you know their diet and everything else that goes with that and it's fascinating is is you'll start maybe I'll start at a dose of synthroid a classic thyroid hormone or nature thyroid I'll start at you know a half grain or 25 or 50 mil- micrograms of synthroid but when they get the diet part down which for people mentally and even and even intellectually or emotionally is hard to do sometimes. So there's a lag period before they get that information down. But when they do it, and they do it consistently for 90 days to six months, then that 50 micrograms that I originally prescribed goes down to 25. We don't need as much. And then that 25, maybe after another six months, goes down to 12 and a half. And then pretty much after a year, you're like, wait a minute, we don't we don't really need this anymore. Let's try without it. And even in my case, like I needed progesterone in my twenties, I haven't used it since, you Mm -hmm. know, I might start needing it shortly again. But so yes, it doesn't mean because we prescribe hormones that you're going to be on hormones forever. It just means it's what you need to get you through the spot. And as you do the other work for your health, you know, then you more than likely may be able to come off or to come down at least on the dosing, Mm -hmm. you know, so no, it's not forever. Speaking of, you know, helping women or people in general start to transition their behavior around food, which is Hard, particularly yes. with how addictive yes. many foods and it's everywhere. Are. So. What do you what 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 does the tool bag there look like? Transitioning behaviors from food and needing a tool bag. This has been this has been a challenge. I remember in the early days, just to tell a quick story of my practice. Like I thought it was very simple for me to tell a patient to go gluten-free. I'm like, well, yeah, you need to be gluten-free. In fact, I think we left it as a message. Your lab results have come back. I need you to be gluten-free and da 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 And that patient called my nurse back, like, howling. Like, what do you mean I need to be gluten-free? Like, it's not like for me, which seems super easy. She was just like, this is like a life changer. I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. So it's really, really hard to transition diets. And over the years, I've gotten a lot more sensitive to how difficult it is and have even broken down the information more and more for my patients. So it's not like go to this diet. It's more like, well, let's try these three steps first. So I think anytime you're transitioning to whatever diet you're transitioning to, find the three things you can accomplish that are realistic. You know, it may not be like, let's stay with the gluten-free, for example, you know, or you've been told you need to be gluten-free. Well, it may not be that you can be 
100% gluten-free in the first few weeks after receiving that information. It may be that you drop it down to a serving a day because that gives you time to learn and process what is gluten, where is it, you know, what do I need to navigate or avoid both in the grocery store and at a restaurant, and how do I feed myself or how do I feed my family? So I think breaking down a diet into achievable, realistic daily goals is probably the ultimate toolbox. And then expanding on those goals as you move through it, maybe every two weeks or every three weeks. They say it takes roughly three weeks to set habits. So maybe you set make a new set of goals every three weeks. And that way you can move through something a little more easily. Saying I'm going to give up all sugar you know, for, you know, six months, not a realistic goal, you know, really, again, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? It may be that you simply want to lower your consumption of candy over the next week. So start to eliminate candy. Mm -hmm. First, I think it's just goal setting and understanding what you're trying to accomplish and breaking down these big diets down to, okay, just tiny little things, Mm -hmm. because ultimately, we all want to enjoy life, and we all want to eat and participate with the people around us. So I think that's first. Second is, again, you know, understanding where your cravings and your desires are coming from. You know, we're all guilty of this. I get tired. I want chocolate, you know, or I want not sugar. wine? No, I am not a wine person. <laughs> I want my chocolate. You know? <laughs> so, and then for many women, they want their wine, right? Yeah. So where, what's driving that? What's driving that craving? And there's some science too. We know that People like me that crave chocolate are low in magnesium. So I should be taking magnesium more consistently, and that might get rid of my chocolate cravings. Or they're waking up a lot and have adrenal fatigue. So they're waking up between that 2 to 3 a.m. time frame, and then they're crashing in the afternoon, and they're on a hunt. Like, I need a, I need a quick fix. You know, what's my fix? Is it sugar? Is it going to be caffeine? Is You know, what's it going to be? And then people who are highly stressed are looking for a way to check out for 20, mm-hmm. 30 minutes. And it's wine or it's, you know, some sort of alcoholic beverage that they then go to sleep with, but then triggers, you know, in some women, hot flashes and night sweats or an interrupted sleep cycle. So I think it's important to understand the emotion behind a craving before, you know, before we just put blanket rolls down that we'll mm-hmm. get rid of this or get rid of that. I like the idea too of the clear goalpost because speaking of power women, I think we're all incredibly goal oriented and like to track and like to understand progress. And so I think, um, you know, and I know the research supports this, but saying, oh, I'm going to exercise is certainly not a powerful resolution Mm -hmm. compared to I have to go to the gym 20 times in the next three months, let's say, yeah, or two I think months. The more concrete, definable mm-hmm. and realistic for you, the goal is the more likely you're able to fulfill it, mm-hmm. you know, so you can't, you can't do what your neighbor's doing and you can't do what your friend is doing. You have to figure out what is it, knowing the health information that you've been handed or given or have just mm-hmm. read, what is it out of that that you want to accomplish and then write it down. Mm-hmm. You know, I think writing and the use of writing, not just typing, but actually writing is so powerful because I think it registers in the brain somewhere, Mm -hmm. make a picture and put it up, you know, so have those things up to where you see it. So it's almost embedded in your subconscious Mm -hmm. day in and day out and then move forward through it and have reminders for you as you move throughout the day. I think those are the easiest ways to navigate that. And then the ultimate motivator is knowing how good you feel, how good you look, how much energy you have, your brain clarity. And that's a corrector. You know, anytime I get gluten now, I'm a different person. I feel like I'm walking through like a bunch of mud to try to get from point A to point B, you know. So I will never 
have gluten, mm-hmm. even though it's all around me because it's just not worth it. And so same thing as, as people sort of, I always say elevate, like as they start to, to feel a little better and then a little better. And, so, and my classic line from so many people is like, I didn't even know I wasn't feeling good until I started feeling amazing, you know? And when they get to that point, then you don't want to go back and you mm-hmm. quickly recognize, you know, when you're going down that slope again of, of engaging in stuff that is not the best for you. So are there, I know it's highly personalized, but are there things with, that you just, just cut, like dairy or gluten, or do you try to do elimination diets with people first to understand, or do you use an ALCAT test? Like, how do you, how do you get there? So, I mean, there's different ways to get there. If you are going to follow the superwoman plan, you would find your power type, and you would follow the diet recommendations in there, because that is sort of the culmination of everything that I've learned, right? Just to give you an example, one of the power types is the boss lady, and the boss lady I alluded to earlier is that Pitta and Ayurveda, a lot of fire and, you know, a lot of determination and liver meridian and Chinese medicine. And then also when you merge all of that and merge their personality, they're go-getters, right? They're going to accomplish amazing things and their leaders and all that other good stuff. But all of that is internalized in their gut. And so when you apply the principles of Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine, they would automatically tell those folks to go dairy free. So come off dairy. So in that book, we've tried to help people kind of navigate like what to come off of, but to make a blanket statement and say everyone needs to be gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, soy-free, all these things free – it's depressing and overwhelming for the majority of people. It's just too much information to navigate. So the hope of the book was it was a tool to help begin that journey. And the practice, for those people who come through the practice, absolutely, we will do different things. The gold standard of food intolerance and food allergy testing is an elimination diet. But you have to do that elimination for four to six weeks. And so while academia talks about that being the gold standard, nobody can do that. Nobody can go through and like, okay, for four to six weeks, I'm going to take gluten out. And then the next four to six weeks, I'm going to take dairy out. And then the next round, I'm going to take this out. People can't do that stuff. So that's where the testing is helpful. So we'll do regular conventional allergy testing, IgE testing. We'll do food intolerance testing. We use the ALCAT. We use another lab um, from Genova that will do that. And then we'll merge that information to make the best educated guess as to where your food issues lie. And then that's where we'll make the diet recommendation. So not everyone needs to be gluten-free. I don't think everyone needs to be dairy-free. I don't think everyone needs to be a vegetarian or a vegan. You know, a lot of this has to be personalized for the for the individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in my experience, just watching people even come off of processed food is huge. Seems to almost be enough. Oh, definitely. Just learning, learning to, well, learning to cook is a whole another Oh, show, yeah. you know, so that's a whole another show. It's like no one's in the kitchen anymore, but that's a that seems like so over. You see people's eyes getting really big. Well, I don't understand. How do you make breakfast or lunch or dinner? Any of these things? So yeah, I sort of had an aversion to cooking, which I overcame through the help of this woman, the kitchen healer. Uh huh. And she is wild and really cool, but. She just shifted something in me through a very simple statement, which was, and I'm a competent, I don't, my mom's an amazing cook. I'd spend mm-hmm. a lot of time in the kitchen, but I just, I would go to the grocery store, buy the stuff, which was even, is it my least favorite part? And then I wouldn't cook. And she essentially said, you have to, you have to transition your thinking. Uh, cooking is not something you have to do, but the kitchen is a place where you can be. Oh, I love that. And I, I love the kitchen. Yeah. I feel like. 
I don't have to think. I can be a little creative mm -hmm. and I'm using a different set of skills and there are different textures there. And then as a family, it's one thing my children know that we can do together. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And they love getting in there and doing it with me. Totally. So I love I love being in there. But but it so many people are because of the convenience foods and the eating out and the restaurant scene and all that other stuff. So many people don't cook, you mm -hmm. know, and they're dependent on outside eating and they've lost touch with the food and the whole experience of food. Exactly. But I think elimination diets or things that aren't too overwhelming can be really helpful just because you absolutely, you, there is no alternative. So you have, even if it's very simple, you have to do it yourself. Absolutely. I mean, you have to you have to put it into place at some point. Mm -hmm. And if you can't and you have no intuitive sense, too, of what food might be irritating you, that's where the testing mm -hmm. gives you a little bit of a roadmap or a guide, you know, and ultimately that's what these tools are. OK, so finally, how can cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT change eating habits? Such a great question. So when we try to understand why we eat or how we eat, a lot of it is emotional and a lot of it is trigger eating where we may not necessarily be hungry, but we're craving the comfort and the experience of food. And it's for different reasons. It could be that we want to eat because we want to share a meal with somebody we love, or we want to eat because we're tired or stressed, you know, or we want to eat because we have anxiety or we're worried about something. And so much of what we're seeing right now is about the power of the mind and how if we can master it and if we can control it, then it can really allow us to do anything we set ourselves sites on. So cognitive behavioral therapy is a tool where you train your brain and you train your brain over and over again. There's usually in office sessions and then there's usually homework that you have to do too because this brain training takes time. It takes repetition just like a workout where you have to go over and over again to see that muscle build and develop. If we can help people through cognitive behavioral therapy understand why they eat when they eat or why they choose to eat when they eat, you have a powerful way of helping people connect to the emotion around food and finding other ways to manage that emotion. So a lot of the obesity that we see here in the United States is emotional. It's disconnection. It's spiritual disconnection. It's it's being disconnected from one another, from food again, from having an experience with a family or things like that, or having some un answered want or need or simply just being incredibly stressed. So once someone can tap into that and identify, oh, I eat at night because I'm super stressed and I can, I'm really good all day long, but I consume an extra thousand calories between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. because I have anxiety about the next day or I'm super worried. Once they can click into that and then develop the training and the toolkit again, to switch out of that mode and recognize, oh my gosh, this is my anxiety trigger about to go off. That's why I'm standing in front of the pantry. Then they can turn that off and then redirect it to something else. Well, instead of that, let me go read this book or let me go sit and meditate for 15, 20 minutes. And so you gain control over your impulses and you gain control over your mind. We've already known about cognitive behavioral therapy for ADD and ADHD and so many other disorders in our children. You know, So it's been an option in pediatrics for a really long time. But we haven't really thought about using that same tool for emotional eating, for weight, you know, and for some of these other things that we're dealing with as women. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Taz. Thank you. That was amazing. Thank you so much. Go do my hormones. Yes, get them checked. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining our interview with Dr. Taz today. I love that Dr. Taz isn't afraid to really listen to her patients. 
You can learn more about her work at goop.com slash the podcast and at drtaz.com. Now it's time to take a question from one of you. Alexandra asked me, what is the easiest but most rewarding daily habit for wellness? I can tell that Alexandra is not really going to meet me at the gym at eight in the morning every morning, are you? (laughs) The easiest and most rewarding, I would say then, is sleep. Good quality sleep sets you up for a happy life. It keeps your hormones in balance. It's a time of healing and restoration. And I think that sleep and Lack of good sleep is really going to be a wellness issue that we're going to be reading and hearing a lot about in the coming years. Have a question? Drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you for listening to the Goop podcast. We're really excited about it over at Goop HQ, and we want to be sure that we're giving you exactly what you want. We'd love it if you would take two minutes to tell us a bit about you, along with what we can do to make the show even better. Just go to listenerq, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R-Q.com forward slash goop to complete the short survey. Listenerq.com slash goop. That's listenerq.com slash goop.